This is Truth and Focus, your radio program for worldview talk and issues that matter, with Josh Cumston and Gordon Teeson, broadcasting from the studio at Nebraska Christian Schools. Welcome to Truth and Focus. I'm your host, Gordon Teeson. On today's program, we'll be listening to David Wheaton. He has a nationally syndicated radio talk show called The Christian Worldview. He's also written the best-selling book, University of Destruction. David was at Nebraska Christian. Let's go to that message right now. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him, with these same words. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The most significant event in the history of the world, that's a big statement, a lot of history in the world, took place in the city of Jerusalem over a three-day weekend in the spring 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ was crucified on a Friday and then rose from the grave on a Sunday. All of prior human history looked forward to this moment, And all of history since then up to now has looked backward to this moment. The reason that this weekend was so significant was that God's promise to provide the way, the only way of salvation for sinful men to be reconciled with a holy God was fulfilled on this particular weekend. Now, as we just read, Jesus Christ was not crucified alone on that Friday. On either side of him were two violent criminals who were being crucified for committing robberies and most likely insurrection or rebellion against the the Roman rule. And as we read, Scripture says that the Roman soldiers conducting the crucifixion and the religious Jewish leaders who were the impetus for Christ being crucified, the passers-by, the people around there who were mocking and hurling insults at Jesus as he was hanging on the cross, were there, as were two criminals as well. And yet a short time later in the next gospel account in Luke, which we're going to read in a minute, the gospel writer records that suddenly and shockingly these two criminals who were crucified next to him, one of them makes a complete about face, ends up rebuking the other robber for mocking Jesus and asking Jesus to remember me when you come in your kingdom. 
And Jesus responded by assuring that criminal that he would do so, that he would die today and he would be with me in paradise. A couple Easter's ago, we did a topic on the radio program that I host called The Christian Worldview about what the conversion of the criminal on the cross teaches us about God's terms of salvation. And I had no idea that such a short little passage of Scripture contained perhaps the answer, perhaps the most important truths about life's most important question, which is how can we, as men and women, be made right with a holy God? And so in a world of seemingly bad news, I'm going to bring you some good news today about this very simple yet very profound way that God offers each of us to be right with him, and we can share that truth with others as well. First, for some context on this particular story. Jesus was arrested in the the middle of the night. He then went through these unjust kangaroo court trials by Jewish and Roman authorities early in the morning, and then he was crucified with the two criminals at 9 a.m. in the morning. The Bible says that darkness came over the land from noon until 3 p.m., at which point Jesus gave up his life. Now, there has never been and will never be a greater injustice than the perfect creator, the Son of God, being unjustly and brutally treated by those sinful beings who he actually had created. The scene, as we just read it, this crucifixion was ugly. Aside from a, a few of Jesus' followers and family, This lynch mob was made up of mockers and insulters representing all of mankind from the elite of society to the very common. You had the Roman soldiers representing the the Gentiles and the religious leaders representing the Jews and passers-by representing just the common people of the day. Now we often refer to these criminals crucified beside Jesus as what? As thieves, the thief on the cross. But these two criminals were far more than thieves in the way that we think of the word thieves. Thieves weren't executed in that day. A violent or armed robber is likely a more accurate description. They were probably part of Barabbas's gang. You remember him as the one that they released in order to have Jesus crucified. He was a robber, he was a murderer, and he was an anti-Roman insurrectionist and the man that, that had just been released in, in favor of Jesus being crucified. So just contemplate for a moment the audacity and sinfulness of the scene here at the cross. Mocking and insulting the one who created you. The one who grants you your next breath. And the one who has power over where you will spend eternity. It's quite an audacious scene. But that's exactly what anyone does when he or she rejects Christ's universal command to repent and believe in the gospel. And instead responds by saying, you know what, I don't really need Christ. I can, I can do this my own way. Now, as I mentioned, suddenly and astonishingly, one of these two criminals who was just mocking Jesus on the cross as they were being crucified had a 180-degree change of heart. The Bible records in the Gospel of Luke that sometime between 9 and noon after they were crucified, one of the criminals went from mocker to all of a sudden going to believer. And Christ's affirmation of this person's salvation makes it certain. So now we're going to read a briefer account from the Gospel of Luke and show this amazing about face. Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, 
one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Just think about that. You're being crucified and executed unjustly, and you're asking Father to forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments amongst themselves, and the people stood by looking on. So it's a very similar account to Matthew. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the Christ of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. Again, very similar to Matthew's account. But this is where it changes. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. And this criminal was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now just notice for a second that both criminals cried out to be saved. The first criminal cried out to Jesus to be physically saved. The second criminal cried out to Jesus to be spiritually saved. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. In other words, your eternal destiny in the very last moment of your life has changed today from hell to heaven because of your repentance and faith in me. This is an amazing about face, a stunning change of eternal destiny from, hev- from hell to heaven at the very last minute of this man's life. So what does the conversion of the criminal on the cross teach us about God's terms of salvation. There are probably a hundred things, but I'm not smart enough to figure out a hundred things, so I just came up with six. The first one is this, that faith alone in Christ alone is God's means of salvation, not faith in Christ plus our good works. Now, previous to this, Jesus had already negated any other ways of, of going to heaven apart from him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me in John 14, 6. So all other religions and belief systems are false ways. But this account of the criminal being saved demonstrates that there's actually one way within the one way. Just think about this for a second. This criminal was never baptized as an adult or a child, He never took First Communion or any communion. He never attended a church service. He never went through confirmation. He never was a, quote, good person. He never did good deeds like donating his time and money to charity or community service. He never walked down an aisle at a church. He never filled out a salvation card at an outreach event. He never went on a prayer retreat. He never read the Bible. He never shared his faith with anyone. He never went to a Christian conference. He never lived a moral life. 
He never was given last rites at the end of his life. He never needed anyone praying for his soul after he died. He never even went to Nebraska Christian School. And yet Jesus confirmed to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So not only was there no time for this man, I mean, he was hanging on a cross to do any of these religious acts or deeds, but according to Jesus, these have nothing to do with being saved. The criminal simply humbled himself. He believed in who Jesus is and what Jesus could do for him, and then he died, and then he went to heaven. The common belief that we hear in society today that I've been a good person in my life, so therefore God will let me into heaven, that is nowhere taught in Scripture. It's God justifies us. He declares us righteous. He saves us. Then he sanctifies us or makes us holy, not the other way around. We don't sanctify ourselves at which at some point in the future after we die, then God gives us salvation. This story of the criminal on the cross destroys, as one pastor put it one time, our little self-salvation projects. The notion that our faith plus our good works make us right with God. Someone said, faith plus something ruins everything, and that's true. Faith alone in Christ alone is God's only means of salvation. So it brings up the question, how do we reconcile this faith alone in Christ alone with what James writes in his epistle when he says faith without works is dead well it goes like this it says paul says by by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god not as a result of works so that no one may boast for we are as workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them so which is it faith without works is dead or we're saved by grace through faith and not of works which is it well there's no contradiction here actually Good works are the evidence and the purpose of true saving faith, not the means of gaining it. It's not James versus Paul. It's James and Paul put together to give a full picture of what it means to be saved. There's a second thing the conversion of the criminal on the cross teaches us about God's terms of salvation, and that is to be made right with God. You do not need to be conversational on the finer finer points of penal substitutionary atonement and propitiation and imputation and the hypostatic union of Christ and every other big word doctrine in Scripture. But you should if you have time. The criminal only knew two things, that he was a great sinner and that Jesus was a great Savior. And that really are the two most important things that every person must recognize in order to be saved. There's a third thing that the conversion of the criminal on the cross teaches us about God's terms of salvation. It's this, that your antagonistic, Christ-rejecting friend or family member or classmate that you think will never be saved, he or she may just be two hours away from being right with God, or maybe two minutes, or maybe two years, or maybe two decades. We just never know. So we're called to keep praying for that person and sharing the good news with that person that he or she can have their sins forgiven, have assurance of spending eternity in heaven with God through repenting of sin and placing their faith in Christ. It is never too late, as this story shows. No one has ever sinned too much or too long to be saved. 
This criminal lived his entire life in opposition to God. The Apostle Paul was on his way to persecute Rome and persecute Christians in Damascus when he was saved. We just never know who God will save and when he will save that person. There's a fourth thing the conversion of the criminal on the cross teaches us about God's terms of salvation, and it's this, that God is sovereign in salvation. It is his divine initiative that anyone is saved, but we still must repent and believe. I was thinking about this question. What was it that changed this criminal's heart to go from mocking in a few minutes and then maybe within an hour or so later, to go into not mocking Jesus, but bowing before him and believing in Jesus. What changed? Was it something he saw Jesus say or do? Was it the ugly scene at the, at the cross where Jesus was crucified? It was so graphic that it changed his mind? Did he, did he think about his impending death and, and afterlife? Maybe, but we're not told. What's for sure, though, is that God opened his blind eyes to see his own sinfulness and that Christ was his only way to be saved. God softened his heart so that he could believe, but then he responded, and that's exactly what we are called to do and tell others to do as well. Now this passage from John chapter 1 illustrates this tension between God's sovereignty and salvation and yet our responsibility to repent and believe. It says this, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And here it is, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So as many as received him, last sentence, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of that person or man, but of God. In other words, God is the one who gives spiritual life to the spiritually dead. But we are still called to repent and believe. So which is it? Is it God's sovereignty or is it our responsibility to repent and believe? And the answer is, it's both. Now, I'm not going to try to explain that tension because I can't and no one can. But, If you or someone you know feels the call in your heart to repent and believe like the criminal on the cross felt that call in his heart, just obey that call rather than focusing on who's doing what. There's a fifth thing that the conversion of the criminal on the cross teaches us about God's terms of salvation, and that is this, that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, they are gracious and merciful and patient and powerful. In other words, they're gracious in that they give us what we don't deserve, forgiveness of our sin and eternal life in heaven. They're merciful in that they don't give us what we do deserve, which is eternal judgment in hell. They're patient in that they endured a whole life of offense and rejection by this criminal on the cross, and yet powerful Enough, they're mighty to save, change someone's eternal destiny at the last moment of this man's life. Again, this criminal wasn't becoming a better person. He was literally blaspheming and insulting and mocking Christ just hours or minutes before God 
graciously, mercifully, patiently, and powerfully saved him. Isn't this kind of an amazing story? I mean, do you think it's an overstatement to say that it teaches us everything we need to know about God's gracious and merciful terms of salvation? Have you ever noticed how we often divide people into two groups? You know, there's either men or women, or you're either liberal politically or conservative politically. You're either a dog lover or you're a dog loather. But did you know that God does the same thing? but he bases his division of people into two groups on an infinitely more important criterion than gender, race, or political persuasion. And this is the sixth thing the conversion of the criminal on the cross teaches us about God's terms of salvation. It's that there are really only two kinds of people in the world. There are unsaved criminals and there are saved criminals. In God's view, which is the only one that really matters, we are all criminals. We all have willfully and repeatedly broken God's laws. Just go through the Ten Commandments sometime and see if you've kept them perfectly. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever had lust for a a man or a woman who isn't your spouse? Have you ever envied someone else? Have you ever used God's name in vain? Have you ever held hatred in your heart towards someone else? Well, congratulations. You and I are sinful human beings like everyone else. Spiritual criminals who are in exactly the same dire position as these two criminals condemned on their respective crosses in need of God's forgiveness and Christ's righteousness to be saved. Isaiah 53 says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. Isaiah 64 says, For all of us have become like one who was unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Romans 3, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. In fact, Seeing ourselves as an unsaved criminal is the important first step to being a saved criminal. Now, Jesus didn't only say, by the way, in this particular passage to this criminal who was saved, he didn't just say, believe in the gospel. He said, repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, turn from your criminal spiritual offenses against God and believe in Christ to save you. So let me encourage each of us here today to do what Paul commands in his letter to the Corinthians where he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. If you were asked in what are you putting your trust or your faith or your hope in life for heaven, what would you say? There are not specific words or some formulaic prayer that save us. It is truly a change of heart. It's just understanding that God is my creator and that he is holy and will be my just judge someday and that I have sinned against him and deserve his judgment and wrath and that only through repenting of my sin and placing my faith in who Jesus is and what he's done on my behalf on the cross that I can have my sins be forgiven and be right with God. The words don't really matter. Again, there's no formulaic prayer. It's the belief inside the heart behind the words that saves This criminal, as you notice, didn't say, Jesus, I repent of my sin and I believe in you as my Savior and Lord. But that's what his words expressed that was the changed belief inside his heart. 
And by the way, this criminal didn't accept Jesus, as we like to say, I accepted Jesus. He actually cried out for mercy for Jesus to accept him. He recognized that only Jesus could save him. And there's a major difference between the faith of the criminal and the religious Pharisees, the religious leaders who talked about God and did good works, at least in their own eyes they were good works, but they didn't do the one thing that the criminal on the cross did. They didn't believe in who Jesus was and what Jesus had come to do for him. So as we close today, if you're a young person here today and you think you can sort of wait till you get older to become a Christian, you are walking a tightrope literally over the flames of, of hell because we never know. We never know in a car ride or whatever is going to happen in life. We never know when we are, quote, going to meet our maker. If you heard it here today and you consider yourself saved but think, well, you know, I'll be a better Christian later in life. You need to think about your priorities. No one who understands what Christ did for him or her on the cross will choose the world and what it offers over what the great life and the great purpose of knowing and following Christ. If you read the story of the criminal on the cross here today and you think it's, quote, not fair that the criminal got to live his whole life the way he wanted to live it, and yet God saved him in the very, very last moment. And meanwhile, you've been toiling away for decades serving the Lord. You're looking at it the wrong way. This criminal actually wasted his life not following Christ. Meanwhile, you have the great privilege of following him in the here and now. If you're here today and you think this is a, a nice story that has heartwarming life lessons, but that the biblical assertion that Jesus is the only way is a little too exclusivistic and that the gospel message that repent and believe in the gospel of Christ is a little too simplistic, well, I'd like to ask you a question. What is your plan to be right with God? And on what is your plan based? Is it based on the word of God or is it based on the mind of man? If you're here today and you think this story is the greatest story of grace and hope you've ever heard, how someone could offend God their entire life, and yet Christ would be willing to save that person in the very last moment of their life and save them from death and hell, you are either in a right relationship with God or just simply one step away. And so if you feel this same call that this criminal on the cross felt today to become right with God, just respond like the criminal did. He just repented of his sins and he put his faith, he gave all of himself over to Christ and he believed in Jesus as his Savior and Lord. He knew Christ would bring him into heaven, say. He trusted in that. His hope was in that. And he will help you go in a whole new direction. He will save you just as he saved the criminal on the cross and he will confirm it in your heart. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, like the criminal on the cross did. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing story that is purposely, intentionally inserted into the really big story of your crucifixion and resurrection of the dead. And that in your foresight, you would put this story in there to show us how we can become right with you. And that it's not based on our good works, but it's simply based on your graciousness, your mercy, your power. 
And so we would pray for those here today who may not know you in this way. We're all criminals, Lord. Two groups here today, saved criminals and unsaved criminals. We pray for the unsaved criminals, Lord, that they would see their own sin and put their faith in you as their Savior and Lord, Father. And for the saved criminals here today, we just pray that we would take this message of good news. This is great news, that we can literally have our eternal destiny changed from heaven to hell simply through surrendering our heart to your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time we had together today. We pray your blessing upon this school. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to a message by David Wheaton at our chapel service at Nebraska Christian Schools. For my co-host, Josh Cumston, this is Gordon Thiessen. Thanks for joining us as we encourage, engage, and equip Christians in today's culture war while bringing the truth in focus. Thank you.